that you'll walk with us through life. We sing these words with meaning in our hearts. We love you and thank you for this time of worship. Continue with your presence here as we wait on you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Before you're seated, just a reminder, this next Sunday begins Summer Sabbath, which means one ten o'clock service. 
and we give our Sunday school teachers and workers a little rest as well. So be sure to remember that next week. Uh, as you greet one another, if anybody doesn't run into one of Peter or Lynn, uh, Nancy Lucky's children, uh, then you win the prize. There are a lot of Luckies here. We want to <laughs> welcome you. Good to have family reunions. So greet one another in the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Today, we're so blessed to just take a minute out of our service to recognize a group of young people who have been working very hard this year. So if you are in the sixth grade Sunday school class, would you please make your way up to the front this morning? We're so blessed to have such an excellent teacher working with our sixth grade Sunday school class. Congratulations to you sixth graders for your hard work and Mr. Blue and your assistants. Thank you for all that you do. I would like to invite Mr. Blue to come forward for the presentation. Come right on up. It's been my privilege again this year to teach the sixth grade class. And as often happens at about this time of the year, I think about the verse from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And uh, I'm reading it this morning from the translation that I'm reading in my own devotions. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the power and strength he has given me. Just an insert, as I get older, I'm more thankful for that strength. Now, most of you wouldn't know anything about that, but you'll find out. The rest of the verse says, He trusted me and gave me his work to do. And teaching Sunday school really is his work. And he's chosen to work through us. Three goals that we try to meet as we uh, teach the sixth grade class is to make sure that our teaching is biblically sound. I always try to make each student feel valued and try to help them build their understanding of God and his word. And then another goal, I guess you could call it, is to make the class interesting. Our class is a catechism class, which simply means 
studying, learning, organizing information with questions and answers. We work on various uh, basic doctrines that we hold as Christians. And that method of questions and answers goes way back in the history of the church. So in that way, it kind of connects us with the church uh, at large. We've done 125 questions and answers this year. And all of these young people that you see up here have accomplished that. And uh, that's, that's quite a project, quite a project. But I want to just give some thanks, first of all, to you as parents of these young people who have helped them study at home and have encouraged them want to thank my official helpers, I've called them, Dr. and Mrs. Shearer. Uh, they've been my helpers for a number of years, and uh, I appreciate their faithfulness. And then I want to thank two of our parents who have joined our class this year. A few years ago, that happened for the first time. We started having parents uh, want to come. And uh, so for the last several years, we have had parents uh, that have joined the class. I'm not quite sure if they're checking up on me to make sure I'm not teaching heresy or just exactly what, but uh, we're glad to have them in the class. Then I'm thankful to the Lord and to our church and Sunday school leaders for entrusting us with this responsibility. And uh, it is a great responsibility to help our young people uh, become grounded in the things that we believe. And then I want to thank these young people who have made teaching this class fun. Uh, they've worked hard. And they have a desire to learn and understand the things that we've been working on. And we have a certificate for each of them. And there's no special orders, just how they happen to fall out of the bag here. So, Grace... Zach, oh, and we're missing one. Noah Strickland isn't here with us. Okay, Eben Schilke. Okay, Lily Poole. Leighton Saniseth. And Jack Cool. Thank you.
like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
come to a time of prayer, so important to our church, to a congregation, all of us together, uniting our hearts. Pray with me. Lord, you're the Lord of the universe, the creator, and the giver of the seasons of the year and the seasons of life. Transitions that are sometimes hard and also sometimes just very exciting and wonderful. And so you deserve our highest praise in all situations as we've been singing and worshiping. You're with us. You walk with us. You love us. And we thank you for that. And Lord Jesus, you call us to follow you. You paid for our sins and have given us life through the shedding of your own blood. Our redemption was costly grace. So we pray that you would help us to give back in honor and service and love to you in many ways. And again, we come with our world so needy and our even close to home, so many needs. We need your standards, your compassion, your love. And according to Jesus, the world needs us, needs us to demonstrate your love. So we pray for those with the opportunity to lead and to make changes, our leaders, our government leaders, community leaders. We pray that they would listen to you, learn from you, and act accordingly. Think of all the places in the world with so many needs, those that are struggling, hurting, poor, broken, suffering, and even close to us, close at home. So once again, Lord, we bring the sick to you. We don't name them all in the bulletin, but we do know of special needs. We think again of Dan Gurley uh, with his surgery this week in Cleveland. We just pray for their family, and we lift him up to you and believing you for the miracle of healing. We thank you for good things so far. There are others on the list or in our hearts, and we pause to just lift up to you those who are sick and suffering. Lord, we praise you for answers to prayer, and we count on you for victory in prayer. Think of, again, the places in the world which, in which Christians are persecuted, even in the World Cup soccer where all eyes are turning. Seven of those nations are places listed amongst the most difficult for Christians. So as we're reminded of these parts of the world, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters. And we pray for those that at world events like this are there deliberately to share Christ and lift him up. Bless their ministries, we pray. All of us need to shine our lights for Jesus on campus, on fields of play, at summer jobs, at summer camps, royal family camp coming up, mission opportunities. So we pray for the many opportunities that we have to show people the love of Jesus. And for those who come to Houghton during the summer months, beginning this week with a large basketball camp, we just pray that we will be able to show them Jesus and his love. Think today of the Brubaker family who will be traveling to the Far East and have opportunity to train doctors to show your love to friends and new, new people that they meet Give them safety, give them uh, great uh, joy as they go together as a family. 
We think of others who are serving overseas short-term right now, the Moors, John, Pastor John and uh, Cole and his son. And so we just pray for all these ministries and opportunities that we have to share the love of Christ. We think to also of a special need at Elwa Hospital in Liberia with a crisis for power for that hospital, that large new hospital, and for those who are working on that crisis situation. We commit that to you. Thank you, Lord, for the avenues of service that we have in our church, for what we've just seen in Sunday school and for our year ending today in Sunday school and adult and children's classes, and we thank you for all those who serve. We thank you for the churches in our area. We think today of the Black Creek Baptist Church and others who serve in our own Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so we pray that you would bless our ministries together. Thank you for Pastor Lori, and we pray that you'll bless her ministry as she opens the word to us today and uh, help our hearts to be responsive to the call to discipleship. Commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Please stand in honor of God's word. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, <coughs> Excuse me, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Maybe we be challenged by God's word this morning. Children will leave for Children's Church at this time.
I forgot something this morning. I forgot that I should have worn a pocket or something with a belt, maybe. I've had some funny comments about this thing sticking up in my back that keeps bopping me in the head every time I move. Somebody asked me where the remote control was. <laughs> Somebody else asked me or told me, I think Dan said, my secret communicator is showing. <laughs> anyway, we'll hope technology doesn't fail this morning. So when Pastor Paul first suggested that he and John and I do a three-part series on discipleship, I have to admit, Paul, I'm sorry, but I thought, my first thought was, oh, discipleship? Hmm. It's kind of, it sounds a little boring. <laughs> it wasn't. Last week's sermon was good. I mean, I prefer to preach on stories and, you know, exciting things that happen in the Old Testament. Things like, you know, Joseph in the pit and Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, then in the New Testament, the parables, the miracles of Jesus, the exciting missionary journeys of Paul. I thought, hmm, discipleship. Okay, we could do this. I've been taught to uh, obey my elders, and I highly respect Paul, so <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> but as I began to think about some of the things that Jesus says about discipleship in the New Testament, I realized that some of his most compelling and even shocking sayings involve a call to follow him. So I was hooked. Good job, Paul. Especially after reading these verses from Luke 9. So today we're going to talk about the high cost of discipleship. As we look at an encounter that Jesus has with three men as they make their way to Jerusalem. It's no accident that the stories of these three men and their desire to follow Jesus comes right after a passage about a Samaritan village that rejects Jesus and his disciples. Jesus experienced rejection, and so did his disciples, and so will anyone who makes a commitment to follow him. Jesus places high priority on discipleship, but following him comes with a cost. The verses in Luke show us that it takes focused commitment, and Jesus clearly doesn't want anyone following him without first counting the cost. I ran across this cartoon the other day, and I've seen it before, but I thought it was sort of appropriate. It shows a church building with a large billboard in front. And the billboard proclaims the light church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services, only eight commandments you get to choose, and we only have three spiritual laws and an 800-year millennium. It's everything you've ever wanted in a church and less. A Gallup poll contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Many who call themselves Christians don't even know the basic Christian teachings. They need to take Mr. Blue's class. And in our text, Jesus makes some radical demands on his followers. But ironically, just two verses later, he laments the fact that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's irony. In our story, we have three potential laborers, but Jesus warns them, it's not going to be easy if you decide to follow me. So let's take a look at what's happening in these verses. Luke tells us Jesus is walking along the road, and he has people following him. 
And we learn in the verses just before these that he's on his way to Jerusalem and that the end of his life is quickly approaching. A quick review of the chapters before these tell us that he's fed more than 5,000 people, healed a demon-possessed boy, has been transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Time with his disciples was drawing to an end, but I imagine there was so much more he wanted them to learn. So they begin their way toward Jerusalem. The walk turns out to be quite an eventful time. At some point towards their journey, a bit of a fight breaks out between the disciples, and they start to argue with one another about who is the greatest. I love what Jesus did. He takes a small child, and he brings it in front of them, and, and he tells them that the one who is least among them is the greatest. He also has to strongly rebuke his disciples because they want to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village because it rejected them. Jesus had sent them ahead to the village to get things ready for his arrival, but the Samaritan people didn't want Jesus and his disciples there. So James and John asked Jesus if they should destroy the village. It doesn't sound like something Jesus would want them to do. I think they have a lot more to learn. By the way, the parable of the Good Samaritan comes shortly after this in the next chapter of Luke. It's no wonder Luke made a Samaritan man the hero of that parable after the behavior of James and John. So along the way, some men who are apparently within this group of people who are following Jesus come up to Jesus to volunteer to continue on with the trip. So with each of these stories, Luke kind of leaves us hanging. We don't actually know what they decided to do. Did they continue to follow Jesus or did they hang their heads and turn back? I wish I knew the rest of the story. The first of the three guys, I'll call him man number one, he declares that he's willing to go wherever Jesus went. And he seems pretty resolute. He's willing to follow Jesus. But no, Jesus didn't say what I would have said. Hey, thank you for signing up. It's great to have volunteers. Welcome on board. Glad to have you part of the team. Instead, he says, this is going to be hard, really hard. We won't have a home. We won't have a place to sleep at night. In fact, even the wild animals will be better off than you will be if you follow me. What a warning. Not much encouragement there, but he was honest. This man needed to know exactly what would be, he would be getting into if he indeed followed Jesus wherever he went. I wonder if man number one had in his mind the thought that he was following a regular rabbi around. In those days, people would follow behind a rabbi as they made their way through town in order to listen to them teach and to learn something. So following a rabbi, that wasn't an unusual thing to do. There were also prophets that would come through towns, and interested people would follow them. Prophets were more like itinerant preachers, and their followers would help them out financially because they really didn't have any other paying job or family nearby, and in many cases, they were often far from their homeland. But following Jesus, that's a different story. Jesus was more than a rabbi or a prophet. He called his followers to complete faithfulness to God with total dedication. The journey of a follower of Jesus included not knowing where they would eat or sleep, experiencing rejection and pain, persecution, danger, 
and possibly even death. Man number one may have thought following Jesus could be a part-time thing. He may have thought he could go home to see his family at night if he wanted to, or take a break every now and then, or rest on days when he was tired, or on certain days just decide he didn't want to go with Jesus. Jesus made himself perfectly clear. Following him would not be a part-time endeavor. It was all or nothing. I wonder if man number one stayed or turned back. We don't really know. The next guy, we'll call him man number two, his, his story is a bit different because Jesus actually invites him to be a follower. The man seems interested, but he has just one request to make of Jesus. He wants to bury his father first. Okay, nothing wrong with that in our eyes. In fact, yesterday we buried my father-in-law, and family from all over the United States came for that. So it seems a bit harsh when Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It seems actually almost disrespectful, shocking even, because People were taught, especially in the Jewish society, to honor their parents. And providing an honorable burial ritual would have been expected of a Jew. But we don't know. We don't know if man number two's father was even close to death. If he was sick or elderly. Maybe this man was just putting off the call of discipleship until it was more convenient. There's probably more to Jesus' reply than what we read. After all, it's Jesus. He knows this man. He knows this man's family. More importantly, he knows the intentions of his heart. One interesting thing to note is that for a teacher or a rabbi to invite someone to follow them, that was a very admirable thing because most students would seek out a rabbi to follow, but then could be turned away if the rabbi saw that there was no potential for them to excel as a student. But every now and then, there was an exception to that. So when a rabbi sought out his own student and then invited that person to follow him, that would mean that the rabbi considered this person to have a great deal of potential for learning. It would have been a remarkable affirmation of the confidence the rabbi would have in this student to invite him to become his disciple. Knowing that, I can sort of understand why a few eyebrows may have been raised when Jesus chose his disciples, his ragtag group of followers, fishermen, a zealot, a tax collector. And now he's inviting this man, but not without requiring him to bump down his family commitment to second place. Burial rituals in Jesus' day consisted of preparing the body for burial, washing it, anointing it with oils and spices, wrapping it up with strips of cloth, and if they were wealthy enough, hiring professional mourners, rearranging the whole family's home so that the body would be in a general meeting place where everyone could file past to give their respects, and then preparing food for all the visitors in another location that was considered clean because it was away from the dead body. And then, two days later, arranging a funeral procession, lining up people to carry the body to where it would be buried, That was a lot, a lot for the deceased family to do, especially if it was the death of the patriarch of the family. And it needed to be done quickly and respectfully. Man number two may have sensed that his father was close to death, or he may have just wanted to wait until that time came before following Jesus. 
But that's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus makes it clear, carrying the gift of life to others is more important than caring for the dead. Now, I'm pretty sure Jesus is not telling us to forsake our family responsibilities. What he's saying is true discipleship requires instant action and sacrifice. There's sacrifice involved in following Jesus. He knew this man's reason for hesitating to go right then and there. And Jesus always gives his commands based on true motives. Now, let's take a look at the third guy. We'll call him man number three. He's got sort of a similar issue. He's desiring to follow Jesus like man number one, but he wants to go and say goodbye to his family first. Now, it seems pretty reasonable to me, but not to Jesus. He reminds this man that those who look back to their old lives are not fit for the kingdom. I have to admit, this one's a little harsh. If my kids left and they didn't say goodbye first, they went to school far away or on the mission field, and didn't come home and say goodbye, I would be hurt. I I would be devastated. But again, Jesus knows the intention of this man's heart. And going to say goodbye may mean more than it sounds on the surface. It may mean that there were things that this man was not willing to let go of and would have continued looking back on. Jesus may have been thinking about a few Old Testament examples of people who did look back and then never made it to the place that God prepared for them. Lot's wife comes to mind. She was told not to look back, and we all know what happened to her. The Israelites complained to Moses, and they threatened to go back and ended up spending 40 years in the desert, with most of them never making it to the promised land. Those who cling to their old lives may not be ready for the new life Jesus offers. He wants to transform us, as Paul says, into new creations. And that requires us to stop conforming to the world, and to move forward to seek first the kingdom of God. True disciples of Christ cannot hang on to their old lives, but must be prepared for the new life that Christ offers, which often requires sacrifice. The imagery that Jesus uses of someone trying to plow a field while looking back reminds me of something that happened to my dad once a long time ago. We were out working in the yard together, and I was picking up branches on the side yard, and he was mowing the lawn. And for some reason, he turned to say something to me and wasn't paying attention to where he was driving. And he hit the bough of a pine tree, and the pine bough swiped his glasses off of his face. And he went to reach for the glasses as they were flying through the air and forgot to look where he was going and just about hit the tree. And as he realized he was about to hit the tree, he cranked in the steering wheel really hard of our old lawn tractor and the steering wheel came off in his hand. (laughs) And then he hit the tree after all. But luckily he had a break, so nobody was hurt, except I was rolling around on the ground laughing. And luckily he could see the hilarity in this comedy of errors. But I guess uh, looking back when you're plowing or mowing, not such a good idea. We must be willing to abandon all that we gain security from in our past and dedicate all that we have to living the life Jesus calls us to. Things that distract us, things that hold us back, things that tempt us to take our eyes off of Jesus need to be put behind us, and then we need to stop looking back at them. Whatever man number three was planning on going back to do was something that kept him from wholeheartedly following Jesus. 
His response in shocking words to these potential disciples shows us just how seriously Jesus takes the call to follow him. There's a difference between interest and commitment. Discipleship is not something we should be interested in. It's something to pursue with everything we have. It's not a part-time call. It's a lifetime goal. Our priorities need to be Jesus first, then family. That's a hard one. I said that once in one of my Bible classes at the academy, and our students were shocked, in fact, even offended by that statement because all their lives they're taught that they need to honor and respect their parents above everything else. I hope and pray someday they'll learn to love Jesus that way and even more. These are hard but necessary teachings, and I think that's why we have these three examples, these three men that Luke tells us about and their situations and the honest and forthright responses of Jesus. There may be a time when we're tempted to put things above our call to follow Christ. Like man number three who says, I will follow you, but that little word but may keep us from a total commitment to Jesus. But what? But what about our family? Paul tells us we are worse than unbelievers and we've denied the faith if we don't take care of our families. We're not supposed to neglect them. They are extremely important. We need to take care of them. We need to honor them. The problem comes when we love our family members more than we love Jesus. I'm a wife and a mother and a grandmother, so that's a lot of second places in my life. I say Jesus is number one in my life. Do I really, really mean that in my heart? If our love for our family members is greater than our love for Jesus, we've got to keep working on it. For others, the struggle may be money or possessions or whatever we have that might be first place in our lives. Would we give up everything we have to follow Jesus? Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He asked Jesus what he must do to get eternal life. And Jesus' response was that he needed to sell everything that he had, all of his possessions, and then give away all of his wealth to the poor. Then and only then could he follow Jesus. This particular story, we have the ending, and we know what he decided. He couldn't give up what he had. He couldn't give up trusting in the security that his possessions gave him. So he turned away, and he went back, and he grieved that he couldn't have the eternal life that he sought. There are a few other shocking things that Jesus says in in Luke 14, for example. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciples. Hard words, but a strong point being made by Jesus. There's high cost involved in following him. Last week, Paul talked about Don Little's book called Effective Discipling. And as I read that book, I realized Don brought out some great thoughts on some of the parables that Jesus talked to, talked to or wrote about, talked about and then were written about, that have to do with a radical call for total allegiance. The parable of the tower builder And the king that's about to go into war conclude with a challenge that's pretty sober. 
and Luke 14:33. Jesus says, "Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." It's all or nothing with Jesus. The world may challenge us to make decisions based on things that affirm our self-esteem or go along with cultural norms. We may have to stand up for integrity in a situation that could cost us our job or our reputation. But whatever it is that tries to get us from giving 100% of ourselves to being Christ followers needs not to be part of our lives any longer. Don sums it up nicely for us. The central theme of Jesus' teaching on discipleship during his journey to Jerusalem is that discipleship involves a fundamental posture of strong faith and a loving and merciful God. It's a radical call to abandon dependency on comforts, possessions, reputation, and self. It's a call to trust God for our lives so that we can treat others as God treats them, with mercy, love, and compassion. Jesus is giving us a chance to enter into a new way of life that involves a total commitment to him, which challenges the existing order of living for ourselves. So is it worth it? Taking our eyes off ourselves, leaving everything else behind, not looking back, is it worth that to be a disciple of Jesus? Absolutely. There's nothing else we can do on this earth that is worth more. It's worth giving up anything, everything, to follow him. These stories from Luke 9 highlight the fundamental priority of discipleship, living for Jesus 100%. The only way to follow Jesus is to follow him totally. Doing this requires work, prayer, dedication. It's something that will challenge us for the rest of our lives. Living for Jesus is a call we receive when we first give our lives to him, and it continues to our last day. May we be faithful disciples of Christ, no matter the cost. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for what you've given to us to teach us, to challenge us, and Lord, to mold us into the people we need to be that we can follow you with our whole hearts. We praise you and thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Though none go with me, still I will follow.
Now go with the peace and hope of Jesus living inside of us and making us into true disciples of Christ. Amen.